Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Check out the New York Historical Society's podcast, For the Ages, with host David M. Rubenstein, talking to the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers on a wide range of historical topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. The post-World War II economic boom came at a high cost. Smog made breathing difficult in cities, the oceans were dying, wilderness vanished, and species went extinct at alarming rates. Here acclaimed historian Douglas Brinkley chronicle how Rachel Carson's 1962 book, Silent Spring, launched an eco-revolution and inspired the rise of environmental activism. In the United States, World War II was often regarded as a time of unrivaled national unity and optimism. But in reality, this traumatic period tested the American resolve in the most significant way since the Civil War. In Year of Peril, America in 1942, author and historian Tracy Campbell discussed how our nation rose to the occasion. She examines the critical year of 1942, when a series of setbacks and challenges in the war threatened to splinter the nation from within. That's For the Ages. Available on Apple and Spotify. Episode 409 of the Bowery Boys. The Great New York City Pizza Tour. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers, and today we're going to be cheesier than we normally are on the show, Greg, (laughs) because today we are looking at the history of pizza. Pizza, pizza. (laughs) Pizza. It brings us all together. Mm -hmm. You know, when tourists come to town, at the top of their list is a visit to one of New York City's most famous pizzerias. But New Yorkers love their pizza, too, from the corner slice joint to even upscale pizza options. And in all five boroughs. Yeah. If you like pizza of any style, Chicago style, New Haven style, California style, even pizza rolls, you name (laughs) it, (laughs) we think that you will like this show. But of course, today we are specifically celebrating New York City style pizza which typically conjures up, you know, an image of a large, cheesy, saucy, occasionally greasy, Mm -hmm. okay, often greasy pizza that is often sold by the slice. Ah, but as you'll hear in today's show, New York City pizza is a more diverse product than you might at first recognize. Mm -hmm. As with any food history, take, for example, our bagel show from 2019, The origin story is sometimes very murky, especially when you're dealing with something closely associated with working class immigrants from the late 19th century. 
Thus, that story can and often does change as new research is uncovered. We do know that the history of American pizza traces back more than 125 years to today's Manhattan neighborhoods of Soho, Nolita, and Greenwich Village. So to help us navigate this kind of tricky story, Mm -hmm. we will be joined in the streets of Nolita in just a few minutes by Scott Wiener of Scott's Pizza Tours. Scott will be leading us on a a kind of mini tour of Mm -hmm. two of the most famous pizza joints in the city and really in the country. And along the way, he'll also be shattering a few myths about American pizza history because there are many layers to this story, Greg. This pizza's got layers and layers. <laughs> but first, we need to start with the immigrants who brought pizza to America. The Italians, or specifically the Southern Italians, from Mezzogiorno, from Naples and Sicily, called during the first half of the 19th century, Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Now, by the 1870s, all of Italy was united, but conditions in the South were very poor. And with the rise of transatlantic steamship travel, it became preferable for many men who were looking for work to make the same journey that Germans, Russians, Irish, and hundreds of thousands of other immigrants had already made, the journey to America. And and I just wanted to point out that you just said men looking for work. Mm -hmm. So these were mostly Italian men who came over first. Yeah, most of that first wave of Southern Italian immigration, they were mostly boys or men looking for work. Men coming from rural districts who, when they arrived in America, they would work for a few months and they would either send their wages back home or they themselves just went back home. In the decade of the 1880s, for instance, more than a third of those Italian men who had come to America actually went back home to southern Italy. So as a result, then, in those early days, there was a rather transient nature to the Italian population in New York City. Now, Italian immigrants settled all over the United States during this time, from Philadelphia to New Orleans, even out in Los Angeles. But by far the largest enclave was here in New York City, up on the Upper East Side in the district known as Italian Harlem, and around the old tenement districts where generations of other immigrant groups had already lived, namely the Five Points and along Mulberry Bend. And it's in that downtown neighborhood where we'll be spending time today, because that is where pizza debuted in the United States. It's a European food that dates back hundreds, even thousands of years, popularized in southern Italy and then brought over by those immigrants and then quickly transformed by the necessities of living in the city. Today, if you're a pizza lover, you may know some of these names very well. John's Pizzeria, Original Ray's, Mm -hmm. and of course, Lombardi's. They all play a role in the invention of the modern pizza. And that story can easily get tangled up. So we decided to bring in the prince of pizza himself, 
Scott Wiener, the operator of Scott's Pizza Tours. Uh, Scott started his pizza tour company in 2008, and it is thriving today uh, with walking tours and even a bus tour that is conducted by Scott and his team of pizza-loving guides. Scott was born in New Jersey and today lives in Brooklyn. And Greg, Scott holds the Guinness World Record for the, quote, largest pizza box collection in the world. He has uh, has collected over 1,750 pizza boxes from more than 100 countries. Wow, we're going to hang out with someone who's in the Guinness World Records? (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, who else could we invite? on the show here as Tom and I start our tour of the history of New York City pizza. We've arrived in Soho. In fact, we're at Lafayette Place and Spring Street. Mm -hmm. South is Petrosino Square. And we are beginning our pizza journey, starting with the oldest and the most famous. That's right. We are heading to 53 Spring Street, where we are set to meet up with Scott Wiener, expert on all things pizza. Scott, hey, nice to meet you. (laughs) Hello, Scott. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Good Good to to meet you. Hello, Mr. Pizza Man. Why did you tell us to meet you here at, what is it, What is this, it's a pub Beyond the Pale? Yeah, Beyond the Pale, which has no pizza, but you know, since we're talking about pizza all day and I know you wanted to go to Lombardi's, obviously, yes. I wanted you to meet me at the original location of Lombardi's, which is this building right here. So, and it's the same building? This is the building, same building, 53 Spring Street, and this was Lombardi's, and actually it was a pizzeria even before it was called Lombardi's. Probably in 1898, when it was called Pizzeria Napolitana. Then, after a few changes of ownership, becomes Lombardi's after Lombardi buys the business in 1908. It's, it's kind of convoluted. Wait a second. I, I feel, Greg, like we've just stumbled into some sort of like pizza mythology correction that's taking place here. I thought that the very first Lombardi's opened in 1905. See, a lot of people think that. The story is way more interesting, and actually, this goes back all the way to 1898. Yeah, it's not one of these things where the restaurant claims to be older than they are. It's that they don't realize that they're older than they think they are. Mm. By the way, to give a little context here, you know, this street today is we've got some, well, there's a, a marijuana store, but there's also a French cheese place across the street. There's a chopped, um, there's this historic liquor store, Anthony's. But what would this have been like in 1898? Back in those days, this was the heart of Little Italy, sort of on the northern edge of Little Italy at that time. But we're right next to Mulberry Street and obviously the Mulberry Bend. That's the that's the real focal point of the Neapolitan neighborhood. And then just off to the east a couple blocks, you would have been in Baresi neighborhood and Sicilian neighborhood. So this was really all heavily newly arrived Southern Italian immigrants. So when did Gennaro Lombardi himself come over to the U.S.? Gennaro's brother arrives before he does. Gennaro himself comes over in 1904, in November. He lives with his brother down the street at 89 Mulberry. And somewhere between then and 1908, we think he started working at this pizzeria that was already here. Purchased the business in 1908. And since the common lore is that Lombardi's started in 1905 my theory is that he started working here in 1905 oh, okay. you know you're staying with your bro 
You walk up the street looking for jobs. You find a job over here a couple months after you land, and then eventually you work your way up to buying the business. Makes sense to me. So if we were standing here in 1898, what would we have seen if we looked inside the door here at 53 Spring Street? We probably would have seen sort of a multi-purpose space, probably groceries that may have also had a fruit cart out front. But what we know is that the lessor of the space in 1898 was this guy named Filippo Maloney who paid for the construction of a pizza oven in the space. Before that time, there was no oven here. It was only after that moment. And do we know if that pizza oven from 1898 was the first pizza oven in New York City? We know that it was not. Okay. Mm. So the story gets deeper. (laughs) There's two questions here. One big question is, was Lombardi's the first pizzeria in the United States? And the second question is, is the Lombardi story about them starting in 1905, does that have credence? And the answer to the both is not exactly. So we have evidence that there were pizzerias in New York City in the 1890s, much earlier than Gennaro Lombardi was here and earlier than this pizzeria at 53 Spring Street. The earliest evidence of a pizzeria in anywhere in the United States is a listing at 59 and one half Mulberry Street back in 1894. Mm. So I guess to be more abstract here, what was pizza then? Like would the pizza served in that establishment from that oven be recognizable to us today in some format? This is tough to answer because we don't have photos of pizza at that time. I think the earliest photos we have of pizza in America are not until the 1920s. But what we do know is that pizza has its origins in Naples, Italy. And we know that pizza never really spread around the rest of Italy. It was specifically a Neapolitan food. So it makes sense that it landed in Neapolitan neighborhoods like this where we are right now. We also know that the pizza that they were making was probably not following any strict recipe. It was more of the concept of taking bread dough, flattening it, weighing it down with ingredients, and baking that as a means of cooling down an overheated bread oven. That's probably how pizza had its start back in Italy in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So what we would have seen here is probably an Americanized version, meaning that they're still doing the same concept, flattening bread dough, weighing it down with stuff, and baking it. The difference is the oven was different, the fuel source was different, the flour was different, the dairy products were different, which means that the pizza was itself instantly different the second it hit any city outside of southern Italy. You know, can we talk a little bit more about that and how New York City pizza is different, but can we head over to then where Lombardi's wound up? Yeah, let's go over there. So we're just walking east uh, on Spring Street. We're going to cross Mulberry, and today's location of Lombardi's is in Mott Street on the south side of Mott and Spring. So the building that we're going to right now used to house a bakery that has its origins back in 1915, which meant that they had an old coal-burning oven. Lombardi's original location became sort of an upscale Italian restaurant in the 1970s. Okay. And they closed their doors by the mid-80s. Closer, they closed? They completely closed. They're they were 53. out of business. Okay. Yeah. So, so there was no Lombardi's for quite some time. There was no Lombardi's for over a decade. And the reason that Lombardi's was resurrected is because there was a local pizza maker by the name of Andrew Bellucci. He was working for Two Boots. He was also working at Three of Cups in the East Village. Yeah, Yeah, so he was a great pizza maker, and he discovered this lore, the lineage, the story of Lombardi's as the first pizzeria in the United States, because even then, it was a commonly reported story. 
So he contacted the grandson of Gennaro Lombardi, also named Gennaro Lombardi, Jerry Lombardi, and he offered to partner to reopen the restaurant. And part of Jerry Lombardi, the grandson, part of his request was, well, we have to find a coal-burning oven. So that became a problem just because there aren't a lot of anthracite coal-burning ovens in the 1990s because they're large, they take a lot of money to run them, and it's a real pain in the rump to store and to shovel a bunch All of coal. All that coal. And, yeah. and what, I mean, why did he make that demand? He made that demand because that was what his grandfather used. When you're in southern Italy, you're burning wood. When you come over to the United States, you're burning anthracite coal because it's cheaper. But that also changes the style of pizza. So if you want to make an early American, an early New York style pizza, you use anthracite coal. It burns super dry, so it bakes pretty fast. It's like a four to five minute bake. Wow. And so they found an oven right down the block at 32 Spring Street. And this is a building that had been a bakery going all the way back to 1915. And the oven was just sitting waiting. Nobody was using it. <laughs> So they decided to resurrect Lombardi's in 1994 using that old oven. Basically moving here for the oven, not like moving the oven, which you couldn't do. You can't. Exactly. Exactly right. They moved here for the oven. Now, what's interesting about this, correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't actually have a coal-fired oven in New York City anymore, right? And there's some exceptions? It is not illegal to install a coal-burning oven in New York City. It's not easy. The fire commissioner makes it tough on you. But there's no EPA regulation. I've read about that. Totally false. Hmm. Plenty of evidence because there are several pizzerias. Grimaldi's in the Limelight Building. The Grimaldi's mm -hmm. in Midtown on mm -hmm. 44th Street. Yeah. A Grimaldi's on Coney Island. I mean, there are tons of pizzerias. Still have, burning coal. Yeah, and that have built new coal-burning ovens right. in not the past 20 years. Wow. They just grandfather. have to be done carefully. Coal-fired ovens are legislated the exact same way that wood-burning furnaces and fireplaces. Any solid fuel-burning furnace has to be vented properly, which means that if your building is too tall, you can't safely ventilate. You'll have a creosite buildup, which means that you're going to get this solid that might fall back into your fire and burn down the whole building. So that's why giant tall buildings are not going to have these ovens. Oh my Shorter goodness. buildings can. What an interesting <laughs> piece of trivia there. So does that mean that we can only find new coal-burning furnaces in, in smaller, shorter buildings? Correct. Wow. Wow. So one World Trade Center will never have a coal-fired oven. That is correct. <laughs> Unless it's vented in some very original, I mean, creative way. You guys know this city. People manage to make things happen that sometimes. That is true. That yeah. is true. But Scott, um, just to clarify, we moved across the street and we're standing outside of number 32 Spring Street. This is no longer... Lombardi's. Um, Lombardi's is next to us. I mean, I remember that this was like a, right, this was a double storefront before. That's correct. Lombardi's was renting both 30 and 32 Spring Street. 32 was the old bakery from 1915 that had the old coal burning oven. Right. But thanks to the pandemic, they lost a ton of business. They had to cut down their rent. So they stopped renting this space. They only now rent the space on the corner. And the new owner of the building that had the old oven decided that they didn't want the oven anymore and so they have demolished it which means that Lombardi's no longer uses a coal burning oven because that old oven is gone but it still tastes fabulous right I mean this is delicious classic New York City pizza you know what I think so but let's go ahead and find out for real let's do the real research Ooh, let's taste go inside. test okay uh, did you get all that the the first evidence of pizza being sold in New York was in 1894. 
Although, let's be honest here, historians are simply awaiting some more evidence that pizza was here even before then. It's only a matter of time. But in 1898, a man named Filippo Maloney operated a grocery store at 53 Spring Street and at some point installed a pizza oven in that location. And then Gennaro Lombardi, who arrived in America in 1904, probably began working there in 1905 and then became its owner in 1908. And this restaurant remained open on that spot, 53 Spring Street, for the next 75 years until it closed in 1984, only to be revived down the street at 32 Spring Street in the 1990s. Okay. But talking all that history, of course, really worked up our appetites, as you can imagine. (laughs) We were, in fact, ravenous for pizza by this point. We'll go inside Lombardi's and grab a slice of some of New York's most famous pizza right after this. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. 
In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, we walked into Lombardi's just a little before noon to beat the crowds, although most of the tables were already taken. It's an old-fashioned corner restaurant dominated by the smells and the warmth of pizza ovens. We were welcomed inside and placed immediately in the corner booth, covered by a red checkered tablecloth. So, oh boy, we are in Lombardi's. In a corner booth. New York's most famous pizza place, certainly one of the most famous pizza places in the United States. And we're sitting here with Mike Giammarino, the owner of Lombardi's, and we are honored to be here today with you. Um, how's it going today? It's going okay. Weather's nice. We're getting ready for uh, a very nice uh, spring summer from here forward. Is this good pizza weather? Yes. In terms yeah. of dough rising? And, well, maybe not so much for the dough rising part, but it's good for business because any weather like this, people are out walking. Mm. As long as people are out, it's good for business. Not as good for you know raising dough. However, small kitchen downstairs. Once the oven's fired up, it gets pretty hot down there. Kind so of moist. It's yeah, what you want. We do what's called a cold fermentation. So it's only taken out just before we need it. You know, would say like a half an hour to an hour before. So we don't need to leave it out of room temperature to rise and all that. And since we're talking history of pizza here in New York, is this the recipe? Are you still using a recipe that's been passed on? So for this is what I would say. Over the years, products change. So it's not exact, exact, exact. It's, it's, in, it's the, theoretically as close as you can get it because flowers change, yeast changes, everything changes. So we try and stay as true to the, you know, the original recipe as we can. But, of course, there's some deviations in it. What's the trickiest thing to, to locate? The right kind of cheese or the right kind of the tomato? The cheese is the trickiest thing. The, the flour we have pretty controlled. The tomatoes, because they're packed for us, we have that now pretty controlled. That was a problem years back. But it's the cheese because it's kind of more of a natural thing. Certain times of the year, cheese behaves differently, depending on what the cows are eating and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, Lombardi's is famous the world over. Like, who are the like on a typical spring day like today? Who are who will be your clientele? So these days, pretty much we're ninety five percent, I would say, visitor. Mm -hmm. So people from outside of New York coming to New York, from wherever it could be anywhere, from people in the United States coming here or from other parts of the world. It's mm. wow, amazing. Places where they don't have good pizza, <laughs> so they must be floored when they first take a bite. Yeah, I, I think I'm. 
you know, there's a lot of good pizza all over the United States, and, and even all over. Pizza has really evolved, I would say, in the last even 10 years. So there's a lot of good pizza out there. I think they're coming mainly because, you know, you come to New York, you know, you have a list. It's uh, the Empire State Building, and then it's New York Pizza. Yeah. So when they start doing a little research on New York Pizza, they come up with, you know, us. Yeah. And then they want to come to Lombardi's. And they come up with Scott, too. Yes. So, Scott, um, yes. how, what do you... Before the Empire State Building. Yes. Empire State Building's number two in my list. That's, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. And what, what do the people... How do you describe a Lombardi's pizza? People come to New York expecting a big, greasy, cheesy slice hanging off the edges of the plate. And I try to explain to people how that's only the pizza that began in the second half of the 20th century and that the earliest pizza in New York was completely different. A drier bake, a faster bake, less of every topping, and it's really a simpler pizza. Agree, 100%. We should specify, by the way, that you know Lombardi's is the most famous, but it's not a slice place like so many uh, like places are. So I'm sure there's occasional confusion from people who expect that. There is. I mean, mo most people kind of expect it, unless you're like in the know and you know that like there are certain pizzerias that they don't do slices but there are a lot of people that come and ask for slices because you know they want to just grab something and take it take it on the go but our pizza really doesn't lend itself well to slices and do you have um toppings that are on the pizza that are sort of historic that, that you've been serving for generations well i mean look anchovy i would say probably goes back to the very beginning mm -hmm. so we, we still have anchovy and then, you know, there's sausage. And then, you know, as the years went on, people added on other stuff. I don't know exactly when pepperoni came in. It probably wasn't one of the first toppings. But Scott maybe has a Scott's better... Scott shaking better. his head, no. no. You're anti-pepperoni? Oh, no, I'm, I'm just saying it definitely wasn't one of the yeah, first toppings. It exactly. doesn't really become popular until right. the 50s and 60s. Right. 1950s and 60s. Right. So really, at the, in the very beginning, the original, I would say, was you know anchovy for probably a very long time it's ingredients that have a long shelf life so tinned fish yeah makes a lot of sense yeah. packs a lot of flavor inexpensive yeah. yeah but as mike's saying lombardi's is not a museum it's it's a restaurant right. so it's living right. it makes changes based on the time you got a pizza with arugula on it yes which is yeah. very popular but yeah. and very modern yeah. very man yeah <laughs> you know we try and um Put a few things on the menu that make sense yeah. and what people want without going too crazy. But part of the thing is that Lombardi's base pizza is a pizza margarita. Yeah. It's not a cheese pizza with low moisture mozzarella dripping off the sides. It's a sliced fresh mozzarella with basil and right. tomato. That's it's a it. margarita pizza. Right. Is that something that would have been recognized then a uh, hundred years ago? Oh, yeah. We got great photos from the 50s of... John Lombardi and Gennaro Lombardi making pizza here. Yeah. It looks pretty much yeah. like what it looks today. But of course, like, you have more than pizza, right? I mean, you have, like, so I mean, that's another misnomer that, like, right. a pizzeria is just serves pizza, like, just serves right. pizza? Basically, you know, we were, we're pizza purists, but, you know, the reality of today's economics set in. And it's very, very hard today to support a pizza especially in New York City. A pizzeria is a sit-down business restaurant type operation just doing pizza. I don't even know if there's, is there anyone in the city now that just is a strictly sit-down pizzeria restaurant only? Una Pizza Napolitana on Orchard Street. Sit And they do table service and all you table get Table service, pizza. only pizza. Maybe they got a couple of salads, but that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs>
it's hard to really make ends meet with that with that program. It might work for him. Is he like the chef owner type thing? It, it's look, it's yeah. one of those places that right. yeah, chef owner, right. expensive pizzas, right. yeah, right. Yeah. Then it works. But if you're doing it as a business and you're hiring people and you know you're not the chef owner, it gets really tough unless you have other things. So the other things actually carry us. Well, for instance, like you know, we're people are more sensitive to like gluten allergies for instance so like maybe they can't have pizza so you need to have other things yes yes and and i agree with that Mm -hmm. more today than ever and you have a full bar yes (laughs) yeah but we didn't come to lombardi's just to talk pizza no of course we put in an order for one we got to get a pizza margarita right oh we got we got to we got to taste the classic the classic denny can you uh put in a uh Pizzeria margarita for us. Sure. Hold the anchovies. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does it take if there's nothing? If there's no backup in the kitchen? About five minutes, I would say. Five minutes. A five minutes a good bake. We can bake them quicker if we had to, but I, f- I'm comfortable with a five minute bake. But also the speed of the bake. Yes. It's not like an indicator of quality. Yes. It's not like the faster the bake, the yes. better the. But it's an indicator of the flexibility of the crust. Yes. The higher the temperature, the shorter the bake, the more flexible the crust. Yeah. So a longer temperature, a longer bake is going to dry the crust out more. Mm-hmm. The bake you're doing in this oven at, for five minutes is the best approximation of the old coal-fired pizza. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So is that why they always say, when I when I make a pizza, the guys always say, like, do it as hot as you can. Because you, you want a chewy crust well, but here's the thing the thing is is there's different pizzas now so now we're in a whole different realm so if we're talking true neapolitan you know then you may want that two or three minute thing right but we're really kind of a new york style neapolitan which is a little bit different than that it's really interesting because when pizza existed first in naples mid 18th century it was really hot bread ovens and you were baking the pizza as a means of cooling down those bread ovens so it was always described as being burnt yet also raw i mean a really derogatory terminology for it that oh the pizza is something that you eat on the street it's filthy right, it's right. B- black burn marks right. on it and the whole thing it's a byproduct right it was a byproduct it was, uh, it was. So the first pizzas were not eaten in restaurants they were sold on the streets and it was a way for somebody who probably didn't have another job just to make some money on the side and when pizza came to the united states and it landed in new york city it just completely changed overnight so the concept was still the same it's it's flattening out dough weighing it down baking it in an oven but since those ovens were different the bake changed so even though the earliest pizzerias in new york all called themselves the same name pizzeria napolitana that was the name of almost every pizzeria. Like that was the name of the product too. That was right. the name of the business. Right. Oh, hey, meet me at Pizzeria Napolitana. That's what all the business licenses said. That's what all the signage right. said on the buildings. Lombardi's was called yeah. Pizzeria Napolitana originally. And they were in their minds making Neapolitan pizza right. because Neapolitan pizza wasn't just a subcategory. It was the whole category of pizza. Right. It's only over time that we realize that there's differences between wood-fired one-and-a-half-minute and coal-fired four-minute. And when you talk about Naples-style pizza today, I mean, I, I envision, like, the bubbly crust, you yes. know, the whole thing. Absolutely. Is that what it was at the time? In Naples, that's what it was at the time. But in New York, it would not have been super bubbly, high edge on the pizza, because it was a longer bake, higher protein content flour. Right. 
I mean, everything about the ingredients. Different. Mike said before, yeah. the ingredients have changed. Right. So it, it wouldn't have made sense. Yeah, it wouldn't have made sense. Nobody was coming over from Naples in 1901 and saying, oh, I brought 15 bags of flour. Right. No, no way. Right. And a pizza oven. And a pizza. No way. You use what you had, which is why the immigrant experience is always about using what you have and making it work. Not about bringing the, quote, authentic, traditional method. Because the method is not what's important. It's the process that's important. Right. And by the way, the pizza that we're talking about this in these early days, we're talking that like, it was sold as full pizzas. It was not slices at this time. Or was it? Actually, in Naples it was. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah you, if you couldn't, afford, if you couldn't right. afford a whole pizza, you would buy just a little slice of it. And, and old man Lombardi did the same thing here. In his grocery store, he would sell you a piece of pizza. And he would just cut off a piece depending on if you, you know, it was a penny, mm-hmm. two cents, right? I think people get confused because places like Lombardi's and John's and Totono's yeah. are aggressive about right. not selling you a slice of pizza. Right. And so people incorrectly walk backwards and say, oh, well, they never did. But right. no, they just oh, yeah. don't now because it doesn't make sense for right. the business. Exactly. This is it's an 1884 quote from Matilda Sorayo, who is a Neapolitan journalist living in Florence at the time. And she's describing pizza in a newspaper article. And she says, it's made of a dense dough that burns but does not cook. It's loaded with almost raw tomato, garlic, pepper, and oregano. And if the pizza maker has a shop, he'll make a number of these during the night. And he'll cut them into many slices worth one coin each and give them to a boy who goes off to sell them from a portable table at the street corner. The boy will stay there almost all day while his pizza slices freeze in the cold or turn yellow in the sun as the flies eat them both. Yum. (laughs) How appetizing. But, you know, when you're in Italy today and, like, in Florence walking around, I've seen bakeries and they sell, it looks to me like focaccia or something with tomato sauce on top, and and they call it pizza. Pizza is a focaccia. When you look at the word focaccia, all over Italy, it doesn't mean, when when I was growing up, focaccia meant this thick, puffy, bready, but it doesn't mean that everywhere. There's thin, crusty focaccia. There's focaccia with cheese in the inside. The, The word focaccia is a general term. Right. We think of it as very specific in the way that we think of, oh, a New Yorker might think of authentic Italian food as being the spaghetti and meatballs and the chicken parm. Of course, when you step back a second, it's not at all the case. So when you get like a flatbread at a place, it actually has more in common with an older pizza than you might expect, right? I certainly think so. I mean, my designation between pizza and flatbread is that pizza napolitana, or what we now really just call pizza, is when you stretch then top, then bake. Flatbreads are when you stretch, then bake, then top. And there's a big difference between the two. Because when all the, it's like, I don't know, when people try to argue about, uh, I don't know, a calzone being a sandwich or something, and it's like, well, no, when you bake the bread while the insides bake, it's a different product. Right. Because it's a different experience. Yeah. And at last, the pizza arrived from the kitchen. Mm. Ooh. Mm. Thank you so much. Wow. A beautiful, a beautiful margarita pizza has just been placed on the red and white checked tablecloth here in the corner booth. Touched by the hand of God here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That sparse mozzarella, yeah. which, you know, people looking for oozy, goozy cheese. 
are taken aback by that, but sparse mozzarella is part of the game here. Yeah, what are we looking at? Can you describe it to the listener? So the edge of the pizza is slightly expanded beyond the height of the center. So this is what we call the cornicione. This is the risen edge crust. And the coloration of it is probably two to three tones where there's some darker spots where it's a little thinner and some lighter spots where it's a little bit thicker. And as bubble. Oh, there is one bubble, and I'm eyeing it for sure. Although I feel like I think it's pointing. Oh, it's pointing at Greg, so I was going to leave it. I don't like to mess with the nature of the pizza, but what we're what we're seeing is sort of clouds of sliced fresh mozzarella amid a sky of tomato sauce, and this is great because as the pizza cooks, the tomato is able to reduce without being trapped by a blanket of oozy, gooey cheese. And now on top of this, we also see a verdant, bright green basil bits sprinkled about, clearly added after the bake, because they're still bright and green, still life to them. That's the fragrance, that's the aroma that hit our faces as the pizza descended right in front of us on the table. Can we eat this? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Let's eat it. Here, let me serve you up. Go ahead, Scott. And you are taking the bubble slice. It's a point of honor. Oh. I always like to do a little snag and drag situation. Oh snag yeah, thank drag. you. Yeah, well, I don't. I, you know, like when you lift this slice, is it that like collapses. a term you coined? Yeah, snag this and is, drag. This is yeah, a trademark term here. Yeah. Yeah, great char on the underside. Mmm. Mmm. Delicious. Mmm. And Maryland. <laughs> yeah, it's all coming together. Mmm. It's a it's a real experience. You know? Pizza is a boy's best friend. <laughs> we rather quickly devoured our pizza, and regrettably so because we had to move on to our next stop. Well, Mike Jamarino, thank you so much for taking us inside, putting us here at the corner table, letting us sample this delicious pizza. Thank you for My thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Appreciate yes, it. Thank, thank you, guys. sir. Thank you, sir. Scott? Wonderful to see you as always. All right. Mike. Got a few projects in the future coming up. We'll talk about them. You know where I'm at. Keep you in that loop. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, Scott, that was delicious. So, where to now? Well, we're going to go to another pizzeria, but on the way there, I want to take you to my favorite restaurant supply store. We're going to go to the Bowery Restaurant Supply Store on Bowery and Prince. Okay, we're going to head there. We're going to learn a little bit more about what goes into making a New York City pizza. The hardware. The hardware. We then walked north on Mott Street, past the Elizabeth Street Garden, past clothing stores, and even a couple other Italian restaurants, then hung a right on Prince Street where we then made a most interesting pit stop. So we just walked up Mott Street and turned right on Prince, and we're heading over to Bowery, where we're going to head into the Bari a restaurant supply store. But you stopped us here at Prince Street Pizza. Yeah, so I, I stopped here just because this is one of those things that people often ask about on a pizza tour. They'll, they'll ask me about Ray's Pizza. As in famous Ray's, yeah, Ray's original, exactly. Which, I mean, the joke here is that there are so many pizzerias in New York City with the name Ray in the title. Mm -hmm. Not so much anymore, but really 10, 15 years ago, there were like 50 Ray's, famous Ray's, original Ray's. And the history of all that has a focal point right here at 27 Prince Street, where in 1959, this became very likely the first pizzeria in Manhattan with the name Ray in the title. This was Ray's Restaurant, or Ray's, Ray's Pizzeria slash Restaurant. And so it was run by this guy, it was these two guys, Ralph and Joe Cuomo, two brothers, and 
they ran this business up until 2012 when they sold it to the people who run the pizzeria at it today. And it's fascinating because everybody thinks they know which one was the original. They say, oh, it was the one on 6th Avenue and 11th Street. Or it was the one on 1st Avenue and 59th Street. Really, that one that I just mentioned, 1073 1st Avenue, was the second location of these brothers, their pizzeria. So they had Ray's. Then they opened another Ray's at 1073 First Avenue in 1964. And then they sold it right away to this guy named Rosalino Mangano, who immediately renamed it Original Ray's. Okay? Which is already crazy. Then, one of his former employees opened up a place on 6th Avenue and 11th Street in 1973, which he called Famous Ray's, which caused Rosalino Mangano to go back and rename his Original Ray's into famous original rays which is how we see this cycle start to spin such out of control a, right. such a simple name such a complicated story for a simple slice of pizza for us right i mean those all of these are slice places right these are slice and that's a good point is that those pizzerias rays has come to symbolize the classic new york slice mm-hmm. giant greasy cheesy hanging off the edges of a paper plate one slice to fill you up or to sober you up all those rays started here all those rays likely started here. The reason I say the word likely is because I've found over 15 years of running pizza tours, as soon as you find a piece of evidence that that predates something you already knew about, Mm -hmm. suddenly everything's a wash. So I will tell you this. There were other Ray's pizza restaurants Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. There was one in 1957. So the story is a little bit deeper, but this was the first one in Manhattan with the name Ray in the title. Well, this makes a great stop before we get to the kitchen supply store that still is providing pizza ovens to the entire city and to the entire country. Exactly, yeah. It's a really significant place we're going to get to on the corner of Bowery and Prince. We just turned the corner here onto Bowery, and um, here we are in front of Bari Restaurant and Pizzeria Equipment, and there are these refrigerators here on the sidewalk. These are dough retarders, refrigerators that are large enough to store dough boxes. And the story of this place is amazing because, you know, now it's called Bowery Restaurant Supply Store, and it says since 1930, but that's when the Bowery family was doing radio repair. Before Mm. that, this building was actually the Frank Mastro Kitchen Supply Store, which was the the, the store that very likely introduced the gas-fueled pizza oven, not just to New York City, but to the world. Wow. This area, this stretch of the Bowery has always been, or has been for a very long time, a restaurant supply um, sort of micro district. So many of those have disappeared. It's so great that Bari is still standing and producing and selling restaurant equipment. Yeah, family owned and operated and they own the building, which is why they're still here. Yeah. Although in recent years, it's now shared this corner um, across the street with the new museum, which is certainly different to this neighborhood than what has been traditionally seen along the Bowery. Yeah, let's go inside and say, say hi. I'll show you the oven. Oh, nice. So this is their own brand, Baker's Pride? So Baker's Pride is a different brand, but okay. this style of oven, this what they call a gas-fueled deck oven, was introduced by the business that used to be in this space, the Frank Mastro Restaurant Supply Store. Mm. So in the late 1930s, Frank Mastro and his son Vincent started building pizza ovens and advertising specific ovens for the pizza industry, which prior to that point 
all the pizza ovens in New York were these coal-fired ovens, or they were coal-fired brick ovens that were retrofitted with gas-fueled jets. But my two go-to pizza places in Brooklyn have this exact same oven. I assume they bought it here. Probably. <laughs> they, they most likely bought it here. Everybody comes to this place, which is why I go here to get all the pizzeria gossip. If I want to know who's about to open, oh, then they sold them the equipment. They're the ones who told me, oh, this guy's going to open up a, a deep dish Chicago style place on McDougal Street. We just sold them on the stuff. That turned out to be Emmett's, which is now this great place that serves amazing deep dish pizza. So Pizza Hub. This is a pizza, pizza hub. To pizza hub. Scott. Scott is standing here with his with his left arm, his left hand on the oven door. This giant stainless steel structure here. Can you um? Can you open it? Yeah. So there's two doors. Ooh, that's the bottom. Ooh, yeah. So the bottom door is where you see the the gas fueled flame is going to hit on the bottom, mm -hmm. and then on the upper door. Oh, just opened it up. There this is it the is. Baking chamber. The baking chamber. How many pizzas can fit in there? You could probably fit four large pies in here. Or six small pies. So the, the reason that this place is so significant is that before this, to have a pizzeria really meant that you needed bakery equipment. Yeah. And when the Mastro Restaurant Supply Store opened, that was really about selling equipment for a pizzeria specifically. And they didn't just sell pizza equipment. They also sold the knowledge. So they would sell you the equipment and then teach you how to use it. Give you the training. Well, that's what it was. It was selling businesses to Italian immigrants who really, after the Second World War, a lot of people came back from overseas didn't know what to do and this became a new business that you could start which is why so many businesses open so many slice shops open in the 50s and and you know i've read that american taste developed as well right and changed after the war with so many service members coming back who had perhaps sampled pizza abroad in italy do you, do you think that there's truth to that well the problem is there weren't a lot of American soldiers serving in Italy. And even if there were, at the time, you wouldn't have found a lot of pizzerias. You only would have found some in Naples. And really, even then, not all that that common. It's more that if you were in the service, you would be exposed to pizza most likely on an American base in the U.S., more likely than you would be in southern Italy. Another pizza myth. It's just that, you know, like the facts don't line up with the mythology, mm -hmm. but the mythology is really fun to talk about. So it gets yeah. regurgitated. Mm -hmm. But that's why the Bowery Boys exist, to correct these things. <laughs> and let's well, not use the word regurgitated <laughs> while we're talking about pizza. Finally, we headed to Greenwich Village. We'll get to John's Pizzeria and a rapid fire history of other historic New York pizzerias after this. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. We've just trekked through Greenwich Village and we're now on Bleecker Street, standing in front of one of the landmarks of Greenwich Village, I would say, John's Pizzeria at 278 Bleecker. And why are we at this particular pizzeria, Scott? Well, John's is one of the best and the most historically significant pizzerias in New York City. John Sasso married a woman named Maria, whose uncle was a pizzeria owner. He had a half a dozen pizzerias around the city. Now, when John partnered in the business in the 20s, a few years later, they moved the location, the partner passed away, and John Sasso renamed the place after himself when they moved to the current location at 278 Bleecker in 1939. So John's has been in this spot since 1939. Correct. Let's check out some of these pies. I am once again hungry. (laughs) It was a long walk. (laughs) Yes, it was a long walk. All right. Now it's kind of cool is when you see the front, the front window says John's Pizzeria Port Alba, which is the original name. We're walking in uh, past it, past a sign that says no slices. Another corner booth, Greg, right here in the window. Amazing. This, this table, however, is much different. It is like an older carb with carvings. People have carved their names and initials, and everything has a rustic old New York look about it. Yeah, well, it's kind of become the shtick here to, to carve your name into the booth. So I, I probably carved my name into several of these posts over here behind us. <laughs> I mean, they're literally thousands of names carved into the the booth the back of the booth the walls everywhere around us and throughout this entire room and this room itself by the way this was the cheese shop before john's expanded into this space so the the space next door to us is the that's the 1939 location but over the years they've expanded in both directions they've shrunk a little bit it's been a living breathing restaurant now how is a john's pizza different from anything we've already experienced So Lombardi's was this old classic pizza margarita. John's doesn't use fresh mozzarella. They use low moisture mozzarella. It's the kind that comes in a big block and you can shred it or slice it. And they slice it and they put it onto the pizza before the sauce. Before the sauce. Correct. They do cheese, then toppings, and then they finish with sauce. But this is all the difference, right? I mean, this is the the difference between these pizzas. Is this the order in which things are put? The order, and that's partially because they're coal-fired ovens. So if you think of a place like Grimaldi's, Giuliana's, Arturo's on Houston Street, they're all coal-fired, and they all put the sauce on top of the cheese as a way to prevent the cheese from burning. Because coal is very dry. And if you expose coal, you dry out the cheese on top and you get these little brown spots. So these pizzerias I just listed don't get that. They get a nice tight bake. And when you take a bite, you don't pull all the cheese off the top. Boys, what are we going to get? You want to do straight up cheese pizza or do you want to get a topping? Oh, I wouldn't say no to pepperoni or garlic. We're doing them both. Pepperoni and garlic. Great. Oh, George is behind the oven, so it's going to be real great. The same location, run by the same families. We're both from Brooklyn. 
Scott. And so when I walk down the street in Brooklyn, almost in any neighborhood, you'll see many, many old pizza places. And I was wondering, is there something specific about Brooklyn that kind of fostered and continues to celebrate Brooklyn's pizza? Is Brooklyn pizza different from Manhattan pizza? It's a really interesting question because the pizza itself is not intrinsically different, but the culture surrounding it is. And so therefore, the resulting pizza will be different. For instance, in Manhattan, you're much less likely to find an old multi-generation family that owns the building that they're in. In Brooklyn, you're more likely to find somebody who's second or third generation. They own the building, which means the product is going to be more consistent. In Manhattan, rents are too high. The real estate's out of control. The whole concept of a 300-square-foot slice shop is going away because it's just too hard to keep that model functioning. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It's, the pizza scene is different, and it's mainly because of the transient temporary culture of Manhattan. Is the pizza different? It's so hard to quantify the overall grouping of the pizza in Manhattan versus Brooklyn versus the Bronx versus Queens versus Staten Island. But, for instance, Staten Island is a good way to frame this because I I think of Staten Island as sort of like the Galapagos of New York City where, (laughs) you know, the, the... the species have sort of maintained because they're so separated. You, you know, there's so few ways to get to Staten Island that it's more preserved. It's also so Italian. It's exactly, but only relatively recently Italian, in the late 70s. So because of that, it feels more like suburban-style pizza. It's more small format, 16 inches a large pie, whereas in Brooklyn, 20 inches is a large pie because it's more often served by the slice. You see fewer slice shops when you see more cars. And because of Manhattan and Brooklyn, there's a pedestrian culture. We're walking everywhere. And it's that pedestrian culture that drove the pizza of Manhattan to be different from the pizza of deeper out, like at LMB Spumoni Gardens in Brooklyn. That's not a slice shop, even though it is. What I mean is, they have seating, there's an indoor restaurant space, it's just, they have a parking lot. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite places, but also it's nothing like anything in Manhattan because it has a different relationship to the neighborhood. I think to remove the food from its context is violating the entire enjoyment of any restaurant. Mm -hmm. So you can argue about, is the pizza different? But really, it's that the culture and the way that pizza is consumed is different, which means that by default, the pizza kind of falls into lockstep with the culture of the people eating it. On that note, like for instance, when I go back to visit my family in Springfield, Missouri, you start to see what's called, you know, like New York style. And it's you almost always what New York style really is, is just a slice. It's just that it comes in a slice. It reminds me of when tomato companies, canned tomato companies, started using the phrase Italian style. What that meant was that it's not a round tomato, is that it's a pear shape or a plum tomato. And so it's more about the delivery, it's more about the look of it, that's the style. So you're right, New York style is, uh, well, how, do you, how do you quantify that? It's, well, at, the, at its essence, it's serving pizza by the slice where you can grab it and eat it while you walk. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, I had a slice and it was perfect because it was super portable, I'm walking while I eat it. That's more important to me than sitting in a restaurant and eating a slice that's identical to my favorite New York slice shop. Now, is there one right way to eat a slice? Because you know, there are some controversial oh. methods of eating a slice of pizza. You can you, roll you it up it? or yeah. fold it. I, you know, I don't, people love to get controversial with pizza. <laughs> You're just, look. it's like there's just not enough in the world to argue about. It, it Pizza is, almost feels like it's designed to make people happy. Mm-hmm. So if somebody eats pizza in a way that makes them happy, 
If that offends you, like then fork? that becomes... With a, with a yeah. fork and knife? <laughs> that becomes your issue if you're offended by the fork and the knife. You, nobody's forcing you to eat it that way. I do understand when somebody's getting a slice of Joe's, which is a classic slice shop, if somebody tries to use a fork and a knife, they're sort of taking it out of context. It's almost like getting a nice steak and picking it up and just grabbing a chunk, like pouring some ketchup on it and eating a chunk with your mouth. It, I would never get offended by it, but I feel like the New York Slice developed with the pedestrian culture of New York City with the fact that especially Manhattan is the grid it's it's you're walking everywhere and so it makes sense to pick it up and give it that fold the fold is not just the right way to eat it it's the way to physically make it work as a New Yorker of course you can fold all pizza slices right I mean sometimes you have say a grandma slice or you have a Sicilian pizza I mean like you, you some are square some are unfoldable yeah, you, you look, you, you eat it the way it makes you happy. I always say the slice tells you how it needs to be eaten. You listen to it. If you're getting Neapolitan pizza, it's going to be kind of floppy and soft. You might need to approach it with a fork and a knife, and you shouldn't be embarrassed to do that. I'm giving you permission right now. My name is Scott. I'm a <laughs> professional pizza enthusiast. I give you permission to eat pizza in a way that makes you happy and to not worry about what somebody else thinks. That said, people who eat a slice of Sicilian um, from the middle and not the corner... Those people are freaks. No, we need those people. We need them. Because I want the corner, and I need somebody to eat the middle. Yeah, okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. With all seriousness, though, what is the state of pizza in New York City in 2023? Are we in a good place for pizza? Is pizza safe? We're at an amazing place for pizza. Because even though those old school slice shops seem to be disappearing... There's a new wave of slice shops that is taking a better approach to what they're doing. They're dealing with more intricate fermentation processes. They're being more intentional about the flour that they're buying, not the same old, same old that everybody else uses. And they're just taking more care in understanding pizza as a bread product and not just as a delivery vehicle for pepperoni. Mm-hmm. So we're at a great place right now. I mean, the New York Times just listed a slice shop as the number 17 restaurant in New York City, and that's unheard of. That's amazing. Which, which slice shop? Scars on Orchard Street in the Lower East Side. Excellent pizza. I mean, right now, people are seeing that pizza is not just a throwaway food. It's not just a fast food. That it's a high-quality food that can be made quickly. But when made properly, actually has a lot of time and intention involved. Ingredient selection is is important. Uh, Spending your time concentrating on what your dough is. I just got back from the Pizza Expo in Las Vegas last week. And there's so many programs about dough and fermentation Back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, there wasn't that discussion. Discussion was, here's how you make pizza dough. End of story. What more do you want? Right. Now they're talking cold fermentation. They're talking about uh, all, all different kinds of things. People care. What, you, what pizza is, is the bread. Mm-hmm. That word itself, pizza, has, shares a common root with the words like pita, the Turkish pita. These are all Middle Eastern flatbreads. And so at its core, pizza is a bread. And if you don't think of it as a bread, then you're sort of missing the point. I had a, a slice yesterday that was not great. And I, I see that slice as being something that will, will sort of fade as we realize you don't have to spend that much more money to make a better product. Mm-hmm. And that's why pizza is something that people are going out of their way for. You said that pizza makes people happy. Why does it make people happy? What is it? Is it that it's fun to eat? Is it that it's just delicious ingredients? But a lot of things have delicious ingredients. A particular combination of salt and grease that makes people happy? 
you can't escape that. I mean, it, it's a flavor profile that's just so easy to love. But I think beyond that, there's an emotional aspect of it. That pizza is the food that accompanies your childhood celebrations, the birthday parties, the soccer games that you won, the soccer games that you lost, the first date, the breakup, you cheer yourself up with the suture of a slice. There's the emotional component that pizza has always been associated with the happy moments or with making you happy. And that's partially because of the flavor itself, but partially because of its accessibility. You know, I maybe can't collect wine. That can't be a hobby, but but uh, I can afford to be somebody who's really interested in checking out pizza around New York. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's affordable. There's Everybody can handle it. It's yeah. You can be eating a it's slice universal. of universal. Yeah, and, and that's because it's such a simple dish. There, I don't care. There's no correct dough recipe or the right cheese or the best tomato. It's dough that you flatten and you put stuff on and you bake it. And that's simple. Look, kids don't have sandwich parties. They have pizza parties. Yes. <laughs> maybe, they have, maybe they also have taco parties, but pizza parties are definitely number one, right? Absolutely. <laughs> everything. Come on. Everything is accompanied by pizza. Uh, oh, hold on a second. We have an arrival. Oh, and we have a pepperoni and garlic pizza arriving, boys. Wow. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. This is piping hot, icy minute. steam. I need to give it a minute. Greg, look at the sauce on top of this pizza. Wow. It's like a... It's almost like a, a cartoon pizza. Oh, my gosh. It's charred. It's cheesy. It's saucy. Pepperoni. Garlic. Oregano. Look at the crust. Um, Talk to us about this pizza. Okay, this pizza. Okay. So John's, they make their dough in the morning that's going to be used that day, which is why sometimes I try to get here early in the day so I can get yesterday's leftover dough. So they'll open the dough twice. They'll pre-open it, and then when somebody places an order, they'll finish the stretch. This means that it has time to relax in between so they can get it extra thin. Mm -hmm. Then it's topped with sliced palio low-moisture mozzarella. Then your toppings, which in this case is pepperoni and garlic. And this is whole fresh garlic, not garlic powder or garlic salt or that garbage. And then finished with a crushed California tomato product. That's that. Oh, and a pinch of black pepper and a pinch of oregano. Gorgeous. Yeah, oh, with that beautiful char around the outside, which we didn't really get at Lombardi's. This is Lombardi's a, now switched to an electric oven. Mm -hmm. This is a thinner crust, too. This is a thinner pizza. It does not have that high, puffy, soft cornicione that Lombardi's had. But of course, I mean, you know, we're only touching the, what, the edge of the pie here today with this history of New York pizza because there's so many iconic New York pizzerias that we haven't even mentioned yet. We haven't really gotten into, say, Grimaldi's history. Yeah, Grimaldi's opened in 1990, and it was opened by Patsy Grimaldi, the nephew of Patsy Lancieri, who had Patsy's in East Harlem. Another, right, another iconic pizzeria. So Patsy's. Patsy's in East Harlem, which was open, they say 1933, but I think it's more likely 1937. It was opened by a guy named Lorenzo Magale, and then purchased by Lorenzo's brother-in-law, Pasquale Lancieri, in 1940. Got that? <laughs> I did, and a, and a restaurant that's still open in East Harlem and worth the visit. Okay, another pizzeria name. Can I give you, give, tell me something a little bit about Defara. Classic spot, Defara opened in September of 1965, and Dominic DeMarco became famous for 
chopping fresh basil on the pie after it came out of the oven, coating it in Grana Padano cheese, and uh, dousing it with a ton of extra virgin olive oil. We lost him last year, unfortunately, but his family continues, and they have a new location in South Street Seaport, and they also have one in Staten Island. Titonos on uh, Coney Island. Totono's opened in 1924, and it was founded by Antonio Piro, who came to the United States in 1903 specifically to work at a pizzeria at 53 Spring Street, which is the place that eventually became Lombardi's. <laughs> it just keeps going back there. You know what? It just keeps unraveling the whole thing. And Totono's is one of the remaining coal-fired pizzerias, still run by the family. It's run by Antonio Piro's granddaughters, and maybe my favorite white pizza in the city. Oh. I'm a big white pizza fan, and so that's where I need to go for a good slice. It's phenomenal. It's just mozzarella, oil, garlic, pecorino, full stop. Oh, wow. I want to take us back down to the Lower East Side, where Greg and I used to eat often at Two Boots. Two Boots is classic. 1987, Phil Hartman, a filmmaker, opened the place with his then-wife. Their whole idea was to combine the Two Boots of Italy and Louisiana and to make sort of a funky, spicy, more robust pizza than the standard New York slice. And then Roberta's. When Roberta's opened in Bushwick, Brooklyn, in an old warehouse, it caught everybody by surprise because it was making wood-fired pizza, but it wasn't soft and soupy like most Neapolitan. It had this sturdiness and this attitude, and it created sort of a new New York style or a neo-Neapolitan style that it was classy, but also has attitude. Classy and attitude. I'll tell you, when I moved to New York uh, to go to Columbia in 1993, my very first night in New York City, I had a slice of Coronet pizza. Wow, on 112th and Broadway, Coronet cannot be beat. So big, so saucy, so cheesy. It's the kind of slice that when it's late at night and you need it, it's the perfect medicine. And during the day, it's the medicine that maybe is overboard, but you eat it anyway. (laughs) Finally, let's... End with something that, well, if you're a college student, you're familiar with. Uh, the cheapest pizza of them all, Two Bros Pizza. Yes, the Halali Brothers. So when they opened Two Bros 2008, it was the big smash. We already had dollar slice shops in the city, but they really branded it. And it started off as just a special. Oh, you can get a slice for a buck. But I think it's kind of like the Gray's Papaya thing. You know, the recession special, two, mm-hmm. two hot dogs and a soda. You just, they kept it. And now it became the business model that if they can guarantee volume by maintaining a low price, then they can stay in business. And they certainly have, even though they recently <coughs> bumped uh-huh. it up from a buck to a buck fifty. Well, Is that sustainable, do you think? I mean, does that ultimately hurt other pizzerias? No business that is focused on price is sustainable because fixed costs will always change. And I see what you're getting at. I actually agree. I think that by creating a pizza that's focused on that value of just being a dollar, you bring down the public's expectation for the rest of pizza. And then people start looking at places like Joe's and like Scar's and being surprised why it costs $4.50. When in reality, that's the real price for these ingredients and to pay a staff. It's the fair price, right. I, I do think so. Okay, enough of this. The pizza has now appropriately cooled just enough so that it may enter our mouths and not burn the roofs of our mouth. Alright, you no, you guys dive in first. I I'm already eyeing a couple so of sudden. Now with this one there's a maneuver here. Oh yeah, how do you do this? I just I like to pick up the plate and create a little counter pressure and then do a little wrist twist here. I have a slicer in my bag if you need one, but like this little wrist twist really helps. Look if he 
and then the wig on. And this way, you didn't know how to do it. No one can. And then you just, well, you just avoid having to touch it with your fingers. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. There you go. So this is classic pepperoni. Well, Scott, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with us, taking us around to these iconic New York pizza institutions. If someone wants to book a tour, what are they in for? Like, what is the journey like? Well, we hit up three pizzerias on every walking tour, and the bus tours hit four. And the idea is that each pizzeria is a completely different approach to cheese, sauce, and crust. And we explain how New York's history and culture and economics all drove the production of each of those styles. So we visit three pizzerias, we eat, we talk, it's a blast. And and it's not always the same three. Oh no, we change it up every time. Every tour guide has complete autonomy. They can take the group to wherever they want as long as it's kind of like in our approved list, which just means that we know all the facts. So we take you into the kitchens, we explain dough recipes, fermentation process, tomato selection, like all the real details. That's wonderful. Where can people read more about those tours and more about you? It's all on our website, scottspizzatours.com, and on Instagram at scottspizzatours. So, Scott, thank you so much. We're going to roll out of here now after all this delicious pizza. Thank you for leading us around today to these incredible pizza spots and opening our eyes to the strange and confusing but ultra-delicious history of pizza. Did you expect you would end so confused? <laughs> I didn't. Well, I, it's I'm not- still digesting. I'm digesting quite a few things right now. But it, you know, it's, it's uh, decades of incomplete information mm-hmm. has done a disservice to us. And I, you know, my tours for 12 years were not correct. You know, so there's a lot of times where I've had people come back. And I've said something, and they said, that's not what you said last time. And I said, well, I got good news. I've learned a lot since last time. And if I don't continue to learn, then uh, you know, life's kind of boring. So the tour changes constantly because I'm always researching. And I'm always hungry. <laughs> good, th- good thing you like pizza. It's a great thing. <laughs> Thanks so much. Wow, what a very fun and filling episode this has been, Greg. And because pizza is one of the more fun foods to actually make, not just eat, but to actually produce yourself, we wanted to give a shout out to Pizza School NYC on Grand Street in our old neighborhood, the Lower East Side, a place where you can actually learn how to make great New York style pizza. They have in-person and virtual pizza-making classes. Basically, just go get a bunch of friends for a birthday party or whatever and book an appointment. That's pizzaschool.com. Yes, and on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, we'll have photographs of our pizza journey, the epic pizza journey with Scott, as well as some old documents and advertisements from the early days of pizza in New York City. The pizzas that we ate on this trip we're pretty much picture perfect. Um, So I warn you, you should only look at these photos (laughs) on a full stomach. It's kind of like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Eat first and then head over to BoweryBoysHistory.com. Now over on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys, we are actually cooking up a slightly different (laughs) food 
obsession. In our new episode of Side Streets, that's the Patreon-only Bowery Boys show, where we get a little looser and go down various avenues of New York City history that we particularly love. We're going to go back inside the world of diners and speak to Riley Arthur, who runs the Instagram account Diners of NYC. She is obsessed with diners, even like beyond Tom and I, I would say. So (laughs) we have a great, great conversation about the future of diners, the majesty of diners, our favorite diners. She even gives a few uh, shout outs to certain diners that are still with us that you can visit. And of course, she has a wonderful Instagram account. So we are going to be talking to her next week on Side Streets. And you can hear that show at patreon.com slash Boys, where for a small donation every single month, you can get those and a bunch of other goodies that comes along with joining us on Patreon. So you can listen to that conversation over at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. We have Bowery Boys merchandise for sale, by the way. Oh, yes, we do. T-shirts, mugs, water bottles. Pick up something cool for the spring at our store over at podswag.com and search for the Bowery Boys. Yes, and we would also love for you to join us in the streets on one of our Bowery Boys walks. Our guides... Take you all over town exploring New York City history um, and have, in- including right now, tours of Gilded Age New York, Greenwich Village, Madison Square, Grand Central Terminal, Ladies Mile, and our new Harlem History Tour. Uh, you can join a group or you can book a private tour for your family or your organization or work. All of this at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm-hmm.